Bouncing around. Dropped! Think about trying to make up for it. Fires to the end zone. Touchdown! Alabama wins! The Crimson Tide will not be denied. Hi, and welcome back in to Second and 26, your dedicated Alabama podcast here on The Athletic. I'm your host, Aaron Suttles. Alabama beat writer for The Athletic. You can also catch me on WJOX 94.5 from Monday through Friday, 10 to 2 when you're in the Birmingham area. And we are one day post-National Signing Day. It was a relatively quiet day for the Alabama Crimson Tide. They added three more signees, bringing the total haul for the 2020 recruiting class to 25 athletes. That ranks second in most, uh, we're on the 247 Composite rankings, uh, I believe Alabama was third in rivals and third in ESPN. But regardless, um, Alabama with another solid top five recruiting class that Nick Saban and his staff is bringing to Tuscaloosa. And the key to the class, as I'm sure you've been reading about on, on my coverage of The Athletic, you even heard Nick Saban talk about it yesterday during his press conference, is the fact that they were able to secure some top-notch talent in the front seven. And I, and I thought that was particularly important because if you read my story um, going into signing day, it was the fact that I, I thought Alabama, some of their struggles from the 2019 season defensively can be attributed to the fact that the 2017-2018 recruiting classes just weren't very good. I mean, in terms of bringing in defensive line talent, uh, overall, they ranked quite well. 2007, in fact, may go down as the best recruiting class Alabama's ever had. But in terms of the defensive line, some edge presences, it's not what Alabama had in the past. And I think between that and 2018, I I think it caught up with Alabama a little bit. In fact, I I state in the article that of the 2017-2018 recruiting classes, only one of those guys last year was a starter. And and that was LeBron Ray, who, as we all know, was hurt. He was entered fall camp hurt, and then he missed a good chunk of the season with that foot injury, and they're hoping he comes back this year. Now, uh, one of the guys in the 2018 class that I think will be counted on this year is Christian Barmore. But when you start looking at this, I think some of that trouble that Alabama had defensively can be attributed to to that lack of, uh, of depth they they brought in on the 2017-2018 recruiting classes. And, and and some of it is bad luck with the injury to LeBron Ray. Some of it is, is Christian Barmore and some of these guys not developing uh, maybe as fast as some other guys did. But regardless, Alabama uh, stacked the 2020 class on top of a really good 2019 defensive line uh, edge uh, recruiting class. And I, and I think – that will pay dividends for, for Alabama going forward. But when Nick Saban um, talked about it and he was asked about how he felt he and the staff had addressed the needs of the team in this class, uh, he, he said the following, and again, um, I, I think it's the key to this class. He said, I think the biggest thing was we got a significant number of guys in the front seven. I'm talking about outside backer types defensive line types, guys that are athletic who can rush, inside backer types. That was probably something that we needed to address because I think the lack of depth at that position last year was a factor for us. I think we were pretty good, 
But as soon as we lost LeBron Ray, as soon as we lost two inside linebackers, now all of a sudden we're playing four freshmen through the entire season in the front seven. And I think it's easy to identify, and that's why I wrote about it prior to Nick Saban saying this. I think if you looked at it with a critical eye, I mean, I, I, I get, I completely understand the frustration of Alabama fans with the defense last year. I, I completely understand Alabama fans, and they're um, they're they're putting that on the defensive coordinator. It should fall at his seat. He's the defensive coordinator. At the end of the day, it's his responsibility to put the defense on, and, and a lot of people felt that defense didn't develop. That's all. Those are all fair criticisms, but I do think it's, I do think it's fair to to add this in when you start looking at it. The fact that I mean, just go look at the story I wrote. Go look at the seventeen, eighteen recruiting classes and the numbers they had there, and how many of those guys contributed last year. There weren't a lot, but you know now you start looking at Alabama brought in three defensive tackles in the 2020 class and that's going to pay dividends going forward and that's not even including the edge guys they got guys like Chris Braswell guys like Will Anderson and and Will Anderson is a guy they're really excited about um he's a five-star player edge guy uh, with a tremendous work ethic I think he I think that the staff is really going to like him I think fans are really going to like him it all depends on how quickly they're able to get him on the field, of course. But um, in terms of of what he's going to bring, that's outstanding. Those are the edge guys they brought in. Then they brought also Timothy Smith, John Marion Latham, the guy right there in Reform, Alabama, in Pickens County from Pickens County High School. So those, the, the, but the, those four guys had already been in the fold. They they signed uh, what was it, December eighteenth, in the early signing period. So we knew about them, but. Uh, a guy that had been committed uh, that didn't sign in the early signing period, but they officially signed on Wednesday is Jamel Burrows, uh, a six foot two, three hundred twenty-three. Let's try that again. A six foot two, three hundred and twenty-three pound defensive tackle uh, from Powder Springs, Georgia. So they add him, and then all of a sudden you put that with what they signed in twenty twenty. And you've got the makings of a pretty good recruiting class, in my estimation. Good, good sign for Alabama is that the number one recruiter in the SEC this year was none other than defensive backs coach Carl Scott. So Carl Scott was the SEC's leading recruiter. You know, 247 Sports ranks the recruiting, the recruiter, the, the assistant coaches that go out and recruit. And they do this by you know, basically um, assigning points for every player uh, and how good a player that you're able to bring in. And, and Carl Scott was was one that was doing that. So I'm curious to see his career arc now because remember, he was a guy, Carl Scott, that had an opportunity to go with Dave Aranda and be his co-defensive coordinator there. And Carl Scott said no. So when I talk about, I'm curious to see his career arc from here, uh, him recruiting as well as he did, plus turning down overtures from other programs, would lead me to believe he's in line for a raise uh, and maybe even a position title bump. I don't, I don't know what that what that's going to um, I don't know what that's going to accompany or or any of that. But I would just my 
covering college football for a while and, and knowing the value of great recruiters leads me to think that um, I, I would at least expect a big pay bump for Carl Scott because when you have leverage when other teams want you and, and you know, Nick Saban wants to keep you, that's a pretty healthy place to be. I promised you guys that I would get to some of the questions in the mailbag that I didn't actually answer in the mailbag here in the podcast. So we're going to get uh, to this. This is coming from Allen in Aiken, South Carolina. Hey, Aaron, a fun offseason hypothetical. If the Alabama 2019 roster was coached by the best coaching staff of the Mike years, he means Mike Shula, could they beat a team coached by Nick Saban and his current assistants if Saban and company had to use a team from any of the Mike years? Your choice, which year's roster to use. For argument's sake, let's exclude the Shula Cotton Bowl team and assume the rosters are fully healthy at game time. I'm curious how much you think coaching game planner, planning makes a difference here. Okay, so what Alan has laid out, he's basically saying, I want you to take Alabama's 2019 roster and take Mike Shula and his coaching staff, and they're coaching the 2019 Alabama team, which included... Uh, all those wide receivers, Tua Tagovailoa, Najee Harris, but was a little deficient on defense. And we're going to take Nick Saban's coaching staff, and we're going to put them on one of the teams from the Mike Shula era. Problem is, as he says, I can't use the 2005 team. Everybody remembers the 2005 team for Alabama was the Cotton Bowl team. That was the 10-2 and season, the overtime loss to LSU, and then losing the Iron Bowl at the end of the year. And then the cotton, the thrilling Cotton Bowl victory with maybe one of the ugliest field goals I've ever seen by Jamie Christensen. I mean, that thing almost went helicopter sideways. But Alabama beat Texas Tech that day. What was it, 13-10 to 10 maybe, if I'm remembering correctly? So that, that team's off the table. Um, listen, Nick Saban can coach. His coaching staff can coach. But Mike Shula's team with Tua Tungvaloa and Jerry Judy and Henry Ruggs and Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddell, and Najee Harris, they're going to put up some points. Because I can't take the 2005 defense. If I had the 2005 defense with Nick Saban, it might make it a pretty good game. But because of that, that team's off the table. And then you start you start looking around, what other Shula team are you going to take? You're not going to take 2003. You're not going to take 2004. You know, Brody got hurt in 2004, so you don't have him. So I guess your only other option is 2006. And that team went six and seven that year. So yeah, Nick Saban's a great coach, but I think Nick Saban would be the first to tell you that uh, he's a great coach because he has great players. And what makes him a great coach is that he attracts great players. So that's that's sort of uh, where I would where I would come down on that. Looking for some more. Uh, Joshua C says thoughts. You thought your analysis of Alabama's kicking woes was insightful. Any word on if Alabama will move away from the quarterback as the holder on field goals and extra points? Um, I've reached out to a former kicker, and we're going to do a special podcast on this particular topic. If you missed it, basically I was you know, throwing out a question, uh, trying to figure out what you, what's going on with Alabama kicking. It's not just, it's not just bad luck at this point. Um, not, not when you have the caliber of kickers that Alabama's brought in, not when you have the same problems over and over and over again. So I started thinking, what, what did Alabama do differently than in these other teams? Why are these other teams so consistent? How could every Alabama opponent in 2019 make every field goal they kick, yet Alabama struggles 
to make a uh, a game time field goal at the end of the Iron Bowl, uh, a relatively short one. So, what's the deal with that? What's going on with that? So, I've reached out to a kicker, and well, before I reached out, let me tell you how we got to this point. He said he thought my analysis was good. I, I questioned why does Alabama have a a quarterback or a backup quarterback as the holder, and in, it seems like. Uh, a pretty straightforward answer. I mean, those guys have good hands, right? My, but my point in questioning that is, well, if you're a quarterback or you're the backup quarterback, you're spending your time at practice working on quarterbacking things, right? You're running scout team. You're out there running the offense during practice. You're not you're not practicing holding and getting into a good rhythm and having a good chemistry with a kicker. So other teams don't use that. So you know, some some teams use the punter. Um, so I, I have plans to do a special podcast on this and, um, and hopefully, uh, someone with kicking experience can give us a little insight into if that matters, if there's any validity to that concern or if it's overblown, why does it matter? Uh, and, and so hopefully in the next week or two, we're going to be able to bring you guys that particular uh podcast um elizabeth tweets uh sent into the mailbag how is clemson able to keep its assistant coaching staff when alabama and others are not now that's a that's a very good question but but remember um clemson finally lost one of its coordinators right jeff scott is is now the coach at south florida so Finally, that's Clemson's having to deal with that a little bit. But remember, Clemson had co-offensive coordinators. Uh, they had Tony Elliott and Jeff Scott, so they still have Tony Elliott. But um, to answer your question, Clemson's a – how do I put this? It's um, – Saban is very difficult to work for. I don't think anyone would begrudge me saying that. I think um, even the common fan can understand seeing Nick Saban's outburst at times, how he may, he's a very volatile personality. He's very demanding. Uh, he's, uh, and he's, de- he's not unreasonably demanding because he's not willing to ask his assistant coaches to do something that he's not willing to do. So from that regard, you know what you're getting into, but my, my broader point is uh, you guys have seen how volatile he can be on the sidelines and press conferences with his players and, um, even with it, if you guys remember when, when Lane Kiffin was there, um, you see him on the sideline with assistant coaches. So you see how, I guess, uncomfortable that could maybe be at times for assistants. And I don't think that's the case at Clemson. You look at – it's just two – it's two completely different coaching styles. And uh, I, don't, I don't think one is better than the other. It's just whatever you prefer to work for. So uh, I do think guys have sort of a – best if used by date working for Nick Saban because he can, because he's so demanding because he's so thorough. Um, you, he works you hard and, um, you know, Dabo is a guy that's, uh, that he doesn't want you missing your kid's practice, your your kid's game. Uh, if you got, you got a kid playing sports, uh, he'll actually get mad at you. If, uh, if you're in the office late at night when you could be at your kid's game. So, um, just a little different way of, of how they run their organizations. Both have been uber successful. But that's why I, I think you start looking at, well, we're having success. I'm making good money. And my working life is pretty good. 
uh, when you're in a Clemson assistant, you're probably apt to stay in that environment for as long as you can or until uh, a better situation came along like it, like it did for Jeff Scott. At Alabama, um, you can win big. Uh, you, you're you're going to make good money. You're going to raise your profile, but you're going to have to deal with the demands of a exacting boss who um, does not suffer um, – people who don't get the job done. I mean, the whole motto that he, he took from Bill Belichick is what? It's do your job. And so um, that's that's the difference, I think, between um, between the programs. And, and that's probably why Clemson has been able to keep its staff, although for the life of me, um, I, I can't figure out why no one's hired Brent Venables. I mean, he's a tremendous defensive mind. It seems like someone would have given him a shot to be a head coach by now. But I also don't know Brent Venable's aspirations. I don't know his career goals. Maybe he's completely happy. And I always tell people this. We always assume that the, that everyone wants the big job, right? We always assume that you're climbing the ladder. And I think that's true for a lot of people. But I don't think it's true for everyone. Because I want you to consider this. If you're a major, if you're a really good top of the line coordinator at a major power five um, program, uh, a blue blood or a, a top of the line blue blood power five program that pays a lot of money, you you have what half the, half the responsibility, maybe less than half the responsibility of the head coach. And you're still making, I don't know, let's throw it out there, $2 million, $2.5 million a year just to be the coach and coordinator of one side of the ball. And you don't have to deal with the speaking engagement like, like a coach does. I mean, the whole weight of the program doesn't fall down on you. It's a more comfortable place. And maybe that's where Brent Venables is. Maybe he doesn't desire to have the big job. Maybe the big job for him is the one that he currently has. Just something to think about. Um, but there is, there's no question that Alabama burns through uh, its assistant coaches a lot more quickly than Clemson has done. I want to pr- appreciate you guys to listening to uh, another podcast here on The Athletic. Until next time, this has been Aaron Suttles for Second and 26.